And, and by the way, so what, what movie next week? What should we do? Come on, get some ideas. A Christmas Carol. No. <laughs> next year. Jurassic Park. Top Gun. Oh, that would be a fun one. What's that? Ma- I didn't hear it. Not, okay, all right, all right. Well, this is not a democracy. We have already chosen the movie, so. Um, uh, you'll have to tune in next week to see what we do. Uh, but it, 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 this is an important moment for us because I think when we look at movies, really what we're seeing in movies is something like uh, a Trojan horse. And I talked about this last week, if you were here, that every story that we encounter is something like that old Greek myth of the Trojan horse. You remember this story from maybe like high school lit or college lit, whenever you uh, studied this, the Trojan horse uh, shows up on the gates of Troy and inside uh, are the elite Greek soldiers who are hiding unbeknownst to the uh, the city citizens of Troy. And uh, in Troy, they see this as a sign of like, hey, we, we, we have left. It's a parting gift. The war is over. They open the gates, welcome the Trojan horse, and uh, the elite soldiers get out and they, you know, sack the city, right? And again, we, we talked about this last week, depending on what side you're on, if you are uh, the, the Greeks, this is an incredible victory. If you're from Troy, this is a devastating defeat. The point is that inside every Trojan horse hides something that seeks to make its home uh, in the city or uh, in our lives, in our hearts and minds. Every story that we tell, that we watch, that we listen to, uh, that we retell has something inside that seeks to make its home in our hearts. And so what we want to do with these stories is learn how to get out and evaluate what is inside these, uh, this Trojan horse. It may be fantastic. It may have a way of kind of sneaking past some of the uh, internal intellectual defense mechanisms that sometimes we have up, uh, creating and telling us a better story, ultimately uh, uh, shaping and forming a desire in our hearts and minds for God's ultimate story. The point is, stories are powerful. And so each week we're going to be exploring these different kinds of stories. This week is uh, Jesus' revolution. Before you write this up as just a layup, like, of of course you would do this movie, right? You're a church. Uh, Hang in there with me. Because there is some fascinating nuance to this story. Here's the summary. You caught a little bit of it in the trailer. Uh, It takes place largely 1970s California and the countercultural movement. Uh, You have teenager Greg Laurie is searching for meaning and he finds it in an unlikely place in the burgeoning Jesus movement led by the charismatic hippie evangelist Lonnie Frisbee. We saw him with the long hair in that trailer. Greg joins forces with Lonnie, drawing others into their unconventional faith. Meanwhile, Pastor Chuck Smith, played by Kelsey Grammer, Frazier, if you don't know, uh, struggles with his dwindling congregation and uh, clashes with tradition. He initially rejects the influx of long-haired, guitar-wielding hippies into his church, but there is something about the movement that he cannot ignore. Something seems to be working with this Lonnie Frisbee character in a way that's not working in his own church. And as the movie uh, plays out, it follows the struggle and tension of this religious leader, Chuck Smith, wrestling with how to engage a rapidly changing culture around him, if he should engage it at all. And there's this pretty moving scene right towards the beginning of uh, the film that I think sets up the central tension. 
Chuck Smith uh, is realizing that his own daughter is becoming more and more enamored uh, with the very cultural movement that he has spent so much of his energy preaching against. He's afraid that he's about to lose her to this downward spiral of a drug-infested, sex-crazed life embodied by this hippie movement. It is at this moment when she, his daughter, arrives home early one morning with her new friend, Lonnie Frisbee, who seems to embody the very person uh, Chuck Smith sees as the enemy of culture, the enemy of his church, only Lonnie is actually a follower of Jesus. And after taking time to wrestle and hear the concerns from Chuck Smith, Lonnie Frisbee has this line uh, about how he sees this profoundly countercultural hippie movement. He says this to Chuck Smith. They're sitting over uh, the breakfast table, having a cup of coffee, and he says, uh, hey, if you look a little closer at this group you are so annoyed with, so frustrated with, if you look a little closer, you'll see a bunch of right kids looking for a bunch of right things in a bunch of wrong places. A bunch of right kids looking for the right things in wrong places. And it's this paradigm shift that stuck out to me. And it confronts Chuck Smith with an opportunity to look at this whole situation from a very different perspective, if even just for a moment. And while this sounds a little simplistic at first, I think there is something profoundly important worth exploring for us today. Because whether we recognize it or not, the church today, and I'm not just talking about this church, I'm going to specifically talk about the church in the West, the church finds itself in the very same position Chuck Smith was in 50 plus years ago. In fact, it is a tension that the church will continue to feel with more and more pressure. This is not a new story. This is an age-old story. Here's the question Chuck Smith is confronted with, the question that we're confronted with. How should the church engage with the world around it? It's simple, right? But let's add a little spin to it. How should the church engage a rapidly changing and ever-progressing worldview represented in the culture around it? Should the church engage that at all? I think that's worth asking. Should we step into some of the, the hot-button cultural issues? We, we, we know the issues that come to mind because they're going to be on the ballot in, in a couple months from now. We're about to watch a whole parade, a, a, a carnival of sorts take place across our countries. We're wrestling through these kinds of issues. Should, does the church have any voice in that? Should we, should we step into that conversation? Should we stay back and let it play out and kind of let, you know, let them do their own thing? We'll do our own thing. Laissez-faire approach to cultural engagement. How should we engage the world around us? How should you, as a follower of Jesus, think about some of the most pressing cultural questions that you may not be asking, but your friends, neighbors, coworkers are. You see, we're living in a really interesting moment in history. If you zoom back for a second, when for the first time in almost 1700 years, uh, the church or the, the Christian worldview is not the dominant ideological force in Western culture anymore. 
In a lot of ways, you can trace this, uh, major urban centers across the Western world. Uh, in fact, much of Europe and Canada already widely would be considered uh, what some people call post-Christian, uh, meaning that those areas have a massive growth in numbers of people who have no meaningful, uh, meaningfully direct engagement with followers of Jesus that they know of. Christianity in these post-Christian parts of our world uh, is typically considered as an archaic social experiment that is past its time enforcing slave-like social norms and restrictive, bigoted worldview. Right? And th this is true across uh, many, much of Western society right now, particularly in our urban areas. And in the U.S., we already see this in full force in cities like New York, L.A., Chicago, Seattle. And while it may not be in full swing here yet, it's growing. More and more in the city of Columbus, in our own space, people uh, see the church as a hopelessly doomed social institution that can uh, inadvertently be hijacked as an agent only of right-wing conservatism. As an institution seeking to repress freedom and reinforce all sorts of stereotypes and norms, that is the dominant picture today of what the church is and does. You think about just one arena of social discourse sexuality. I mean, consider how drastically any type of conversation about this has changed in just a few short years. I mean, we have words and phrases uh, to describe identities and practices that the vast majority of the population uh, had never heard of or even considered even five years ago. Things change very rapidly. We have new ways to talk about race and gender and climate change, the relationship between science and religion, power, sexuality. And the question is, with how quickly all of these topics uh, develop, transform, and change, in that context, how does the church engage? How do we, as followers of Jesus, engage in these kinds of conversations with our coworkers, with our friends, with our neighbors, our family, knowing that uh, the complexity and challenge will rise at an exponential rate? And all of a sudden, the stakes seem a little bit higher on the central question raised by this film. How should the church engage in the world around it? Should we even bother? Well, if you have a Bible with you, I want to look at a very interesting story from the New Testament today. The New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up uh, to the New Testament book of Acts. I'll also have the, uh, the passage on the screen behind me when we read through it. We'll be in Acts chapter 17, which I think offers a very interesting, at least model, to answer this question, should the church engage or how should the church engage in the world around it? Uh, and what we're going to do the rest of our time is look at the example uh, from the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest leaders in the, uh, in the Christian movement. We'll see how he approached this topic of cultural engagement, especially in a culture that is utterly unfamiliar with the message of Jesus. And like we talked about, that's increasingly like our own, more and more like our own culture. We'll be in Acts chapter 17. We'll start in verse 16. Before we jump into that, let me pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for the time you have given us today. As some of us are here, uh, we're not even sure what we're doing inside of a church today. 
God, maybe we came on the arm of a friend. Uh, Maybe we have uh, just something going on in our lives that kind of stirred us to be in this place here and now. And yet I don't believe that any of us are here by accident. You have something from your word for each and every one of us. And so I pray that you would speak powerfully to us today. Anything that's just from me, Lord, I'd ask that you would allow to just fade from memory quickly. But your truth would go forward and find its home in our hearts, minds, and imaginations and stir something inside of us. Father, that we would uh, see our, you know, your word do more than just challenge our thinking. Would you change our hearts today? We trust you for that work. We thank you. And Lord, we're also mindful right now that there are uh, many other churches across our uh, country that even now are meeting together. We pray that you would help every church wrestle with how we ought to step into the cultural moment we live in with the good news of Jesus. That we would not become uh, like a series of museums that just preserve norms from a bygone era. But would we be uh, places that uh, send people out with good news of great joy for all people in Jesus. And so we trust you to that end. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, uh, starting at verse 16, which you need to know a little bit just by way of context for the book of Acts. It traces the story of the beginning of uh, the Jesus movement. Right after Jesus' death and resurrection, it, it follows the earliest followers of Jesus in, in their, uh, their expansion from uh, the town of Jerusalem uh, to the rest of the Roman Empire. And you see things growing uh, as more and more people are becoming followers of Jesus. Paul is one of the central figures there, uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Christian movement, and he's been going from city to city, usually major cities of influence in the Roman Empire, to start these new communities that today we call churches. So he's been to several cities recently, earlier in chapter 17, uh, where there have actually been riots started, and he's had to escape pretty dramatically, uh, and the authorities are now looking for him. He's on the run. He ends up in Athens, and he's waiting for some of his co-workers to meet him there, doesn't know how long he's going to be there, Uh, but just like Paul always does, he gets to work as soon as he gets to the city. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things Mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
right? And again, just a little bit of context. Paul's been traveling around. He finally finds himself in this ancient city of Athens, which had this reputation as a philosopher's city. Like people would come there to discuss the news. They wanted to uh, discuss worldview. That's why he is in Athens. It's a strategic place. It is a intellectual, institutional uh, city. And in, in a lot of ways, I think it reminds me of what the city of Columbus represents with the influence of the university being a hub of intellectual conversation happening here. And again, I think it's, it's, it's very interesting how this whole story starts with Paul. He's walking around through Athens, verse 16 again, and his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked. It's an interesting word. And I think this is the first thing we learn from Paul's example about engaging the world around us. Uh, friends, th there's a sense in which we need to be provoked. Now, let me explain what that means, because this is actually a very interesting word. It shows up in the New Testament. It shows up only one other time. It's a word that means anger. Outside of the New Testament, sometimes it means like a like a, a fierce anger. It's describing this feeling that bubbles up in Paul as he walks through the city of Athens, learning and taking in what he sees. And, and, and I think this is really odd because it, as I was initially looking at this passage, I, I mean, I think that some of us would resonate with this. We'd expect to find something different from Paul. Right, he's here to tell people about Jesus. He's got good news of great joy for them. So you'd expect for him to uh, have something like, uh, that there were to be something more like compassion. Right? This sounds like grouchy old man Paul. Okay? And yet the more I looked at this, I realized the issue is not that Paul is provoked. That's not the problem. It's what provokes Paul. Why is he provoked? Look at the end of verse 16 again. His spirit is provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And I think this is a vital distinction for us to make. Paul is provoked by the idolatry behind his cultural moment, not the culture itself. We're going to talk about idolatry in a minute, but hang in there with me. He is not provoked by the people themselves. But just think about how easy it is to miss that. If you jump back to the movie for a moment, this is where Chuck Smith makes a value judgment about an entire group of people that he's against, these hippies. They, they, they are the problems with society. They are the problem uh, for the good moral folks of his church that he's trying to build up. But I, I don't for a moment think that this is just a Chuck Smith problem. No, this is a recurring and ongoing church problem. And, and, and I think to see this, it takes some self-deprecating honesty for a moment. The church has historically struggled to make the distinction, this crucial distinction that Paul makes in Acts 17. We often feel provoked. We often get angry. But that anger is so easily misdirected onto groups of people who become problems in our minds. Let me give you one example. In her uh, book, From Disgust to Humanity, uh, University of Chicago law professor Martha Nussbaum devotes an entire chapter in her book to the, uh, the history of conservative religion in general uh, in the West and its engagement with the LGBTQ community. 
And after combing through countless platforms and uh, pamphlets and books and speeches over uh, a span of 60 years, um, she she comes to this uh, conclusion. That religious communities tended to frame their opposition to the LGBTQ community in terms of disgust. That what those kinds of people were like and are like is disgusting. The conversation inside and outside churches was often one not rooted in a uh, compassionate uh, disagreement with a lifestyle about human flourishing and thriving, but it was framed around something being gross. Here's the problem. Even though being provoked like Paul is essential, when we are provoked by people, they become problems. And if we try and live out the ethic of Jesus to extend love to someone else, it is very hard to love someone that you find annoying, gross, disgusting. Someone that enrages you. So often we get provoked by the wrong thing. We get provoked by people. The Paul's model is something very different. It's just as strong, but it is very different. He is not provoked by people. He is provoked by what is happening, what is producing these things. When the church is provoked by people, we go on the defense. We uh, go into shelter mode. We go into protection mode. But when we are provoked like Paul is by idolatry, it takes us in a very, very different direction. Now, I think that raises an important question, like what is this idolatry uh, that we're talking about? What does it mean for Paul to walk around the city of Athens and see that it was full of idols? Well, look with me at verse uh, 22. Paul explains a little bit more of what he sees. Remember, he's invited to the Areopagus to to give it a a defense for what he he is talking about, which was like the the, the, uh, intellectual arena. He's invited in for a moment. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, historically, we know that Athens was a city literally filled with statues of idols or images of the Greek and Roman gods. And uh, just imagine for a moment what Paul would have seen as he walked through this city. It wasn't just that there were statues everywhere, right? It was that each one of these statues represented a god, in theory, commanding thousands and thousands of followers uh, to look to it to look to this idol to provide some aspect of life that they needed, praying to the God of uh, the God of the harvest, the God of uh, fertility, the God of provision, and just to cover all of their bases in Athens, uh, they even have a statue for the unknown God, in case there's just one other one out there that they don't know about yet, and they can uh, kind of throw some miscellaneous requests over that way. And in something about this provokes Paul's spirit. Why? That's the question. Why? We got to understand the ancient world, the gods functioned like something like these cosmic vending machines. 
right? They, they, were, uh, they were things that people needed and wanted, and uh, the belief was that the gods could get them for you. They're, they, they're, the, they're the ones who can get things for you. So if you're a farmer, you needed to rain, you got to pray to Zeus uh, for the rain. You need the harvest, so you go and pray and offer sacrifices to a Demeter. They were uh, thought of much more as cosmic vending machines, and it wasn't that you needed them as much as you needed the things the gods could provide for you. And I think before we write this you know, off as some ancient, outdated practice, I think we need to recognize uh, some very real parallels in our own cultural moment today. I mean, we don't often think about uh, 21st century Western culture as being filled with idols and uh, in the sense of having statues all over the place we may not be. The only real difference, though, between our modern society and the ancient one here is that we, we've just cut out the middleman. We've cut out the vending machines, or at least we think we have, right? The farmer still needs the rain. He still needs the harvest, but he's not looking to Zeus or Demeter to get those things anymore. You see, there's a mental picture of the good life that looms large in front of every single one of us. We have an idea of what life should be, what it ought to look like, and what we want to chase after to get the good life. And no, none of us here are going to Zeus today, but how many of us are willing to absolutely throw ourselves, maybe sacrificially, into our professions as a way to get what we want chasing the good life. And I'm not talking about just working hard. I'm talking about the point when we realize that we have used up our time and our energy and our emotional capacity just for a paycheck so that we can get the next upgrade, the remodel, the vacation, the bigger house, and maybe eventually we'll arrive at happiness. But always keeping us firmly in the vortex, the ever-growing vortex of just a little bit more. See, our relationships, our money, our health, our families, our careers, all of these are good things that can become God-like things in our hearts and minds. They easily begin to sit on the throne of our hearts commanding. We bow down and serve them and do their bidding. And, and friends, when you look at it this way, you will see this all over the place. Just like Athens, Columbus is a city teeming with idols. They look different. They go by different names. But their effect is just the same. Some of us have created an idol out of a successful good life, not for ourselves, but for our kids. And we continue to throw them in an ever-growing vortex of doing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, because if they finally check off enough boxes, they'll be set up for uh, the right high school, the right college, the right career, and then they can <clears throat> arrive. See, idols create a spiritual blindness. They force us down an endless road of sacrifice, promising the good life, but never delivering the true joy and satisfaction that we're actually looking for. If you want to see the idols of a community, look at the addictions in the community. As some of us know full well what it means to wrestle with an addiction, looking and hoping that the next time this thing will promise the thing we've been chasing after. The idols are an illusion, though they are counterfeits, they are frauds, and this, this is why Paul is provoked. 
This is why he's provoked. This is why he's angry. It's not directed at the Athenians. He's angered at the spiritual delusion that has enslaved this entire city filled with people who have been created in the image of God for for something better, for something more, for something more true, more beautiful. But the lie of these idols has engulfed the culture. Church, do you know that as followers of Jesus, there are things happening right now that should provoke us to anger? There is a brokenness in the world that we live in that should produce a holy angst that says this is not right. There is a righteous anger that should be fueling inside of us, but I think too often in the church we either become angry about the wrong things and it gets directed on people and not idols, or we become apathetic, we become uncaring, much like the Athenians blinded to the idols of the world around us. As I've been working through this message, the question I keep coming back to, I keep coming back to is this, when is the last time, when is the last time I've walked through my city and have been provoked? Some of you are like, Dan, you just got here seven months ago. Like, how could you? (laughs) Just broaden it. Ask yourself this question. When is the last time I walked through the community where God has placed me and been provoked? To see something is not right here. And it goes beyond uh, just attributing that to a group of people. When's the last time we've walked around our community and have been heartbroken at how there is a very deep, profoundly real spiritual reality that grips and shapes the hearts and minds of those around us? When's the last time you walked through your neighborhood? And here's what you can do to begin to counter this. I think this is essential. This is a spiritual discipline that our church needs. We need to develop. We need to grow in this. You begin to counter this. Take a walk this week. Right, if you can, by yourself. Maybe it's while you're walking your dog. And simply ask God as you walk, Lord, break my heart for these things that break yours. God, let me see even for a moment the true brokenness in my neighborhood, in my city. Now, this is a very dangerous thing to do because you may raise your hand and God says, oh, now I'm sending you. God, break my heart for the things that break yours in this city. And I'm very intentional about how I phrase that because if we're not careful, what we're gonna land on is having that, that, that anger, that being provoked, that provocation land on somebody. No. God, break my heart for the things that break yours in this city. And it may not happen in one walk. In fact, it probably won't. It may not happen in months of walks. But slowly, surely, you will begin to see yourself wake up to the spiritual reality of what's happening in the world around you as God begins to prick your very soul, provoking your spirit with what he sees. And you know that this provoking is not just coming from your own anger of what people are doing or how they're reacting or even about your own preferences because instead of leading it 
leading you to reject the people around you, to keep them away from you, this is going to propel you to respond the way that Paul responds in chapter 17. Oh my goodness, we're, I'm, I'm way behind. That's point one. Come on. <laughs> Look at what happens next. We're going to fly through this. Paul is, uh, when, when he's provoked by the idols of the city, verse 17. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue, right? He's provoked by the idols. So is a retreat. He doesn't get out of there. Says, he reasoned in the synagogue uh, with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He mentions two places here. We don't have a ton of time to distinguish between the two, but the synagogues in that day were like the, uh, the cultural centers of Jewish life in a community. And so he, Paul, being Jewish, goes into these places, and they kind of represent the religious leaders of that type of community. And he steps in and begins to have a conversation with what he's seeing about Jesus in this particular moment. He steps into those places, but he also goes into this uh, area that uh, he calls the marketplace. And I think this is a really valuable piece of uh, conversation. The second thing we learn from Paul's example, uh, not just being provoked, but we learn how to engage our culture by Paul's example is we show up in the marketplace. We show up in the marketplace. This is where, and that in the ancient world, this is where uh, other, the other major area where people would gather together on a daily basis. And they, they, were, they were there for just going about the business of their day. It was an opportunity for the exchange of news, the exchange of ideas. This is what happened in the marketplace. And what I want us to see is that Paul's response is not to retreat away from the culture and say, it's too far gone. I, I just, I can't, I can't anymore. Right. No, he steps up into the arena. He shows up. He's present and he wants to engage in the marketplace. And it begs the question for me. It begs the question for us. Where's our marketplace? Where's our marketplace? This is a spot you get to often where other people are, you're bumping into them. You're, you're building relationship with them. You, you are engaging with them. Your marketplace may be your workplace. In fact, for a lot of us, that, that is our marketplace. It's where we're regularly encountering people who are not followers of Jesus. Building relationship, intentional relationship, where we are leading to conversations about our faith in Jesus. You want two, uh, this is off the cuff, two tips on how to leverage your time in the marketplace with those around you, with your coworkers? Two things you can let them know. On a, on a regular basis, you're talking about your, as you're talking about this weekend, number one, let them know what you actually did this weekend. Let them know you went to church on Sunday and that it meant something to you. And that's it. And see where the conversation goes from there. It's not forcing anything down their throat. It's not, it's not enticing, a, 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 you know, beating someone over the head with an ideology. It's letting them know that there is a value that you have that invites conversation and they might not bite on it then, but they might bite, bite on it three years from now. They might bite on it down the road as they continue to build relationship with you. Where's that spot you are engaging with people who are not followers of Jesus? For others of you, it might be at the park. It might be as you're getting out regularly with other folks, watching, uh, walking the dog or watching your kids play sports. In fact, this is one of the things I love about the, the, the model of church at LifePoint. Right? You, we, we try very hard not to keep you busy with church things. 
so that you can be in the marketplace. I would, I would so much rather someone come up to me and say, hey, I can't be at the night of worship tonight. Why? Because my, my coworker at work who I've been uh, having relationship with, he's not a follower of Christ, invited me over for their birthday. Yes, say no to life point things so that you can say yes uh, to those types of marketplace relationships. That's a good thing. It's a good thing so that you can be at your kid's soccer game regularly and, and, and get, get to know the other parents who are there at their baseball game where you can show up in the marketplace. But this is, this is a vital part for us. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we, we get so insulated in our own communities that we forget what it means to have relationships and friends with those who don't think like us. No, we ought to be provoked There are things that will provoke us. But when we are provoked by idolatry, you see, it stirs something else in our hearts. It it propels us to step forward, not step back, to show up into the marketplace. Some of the most spiritually significant conversations I have ever had have taken place in the marketplace with my neighbors. And Courtney and I, our, for a long time, our marketplace was right outside our front door. As we looked across our uh, neighborhood where we lived back in Chicago and knew that many, if not all, of our neighbors were not followers of Jesus. And they knew I was a pastor. And it, it made for some very interesting conversations sometimes. Right? People tend to do one of two things when they find out that I'm a pastor. One, they either confess random things to me. <laughs> Uh, or two, they don't talk to me at all. That's okay. I'm an introvert. That's fine, you know? But in the marketplace, there's the slow work of getting out, talking, getting to know the needs, the values, getting to see people as human beings created in the image of God who are valuable and not just projects for your church but people. And you step out into the marketplace, and here's the last thing we see. See, Paul doesn't just go in ready to do battle with an intellectual idea, with a worldview. No, he steps into the marketplace believing that he has good news of great joy to share. Keep going. Look with me at verse 30. He steps into the marketplace. Verse 30 says, at times of, former igno- at times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent as he's engaging in the Areopagus because he, God, has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And he continues to share the message of Jesus day in and day out in the Areopagus. He shows up with a message that he believes genuinely and has experienced and encountered as good news of great joy. You see, uh, the gospel has moved out of just Paul's head and into his heart. It is not just a worldview that he lives by. 
It is something far more uh, beautiful, real, and meaningful to him. It, it, mo- it motivates his, his actions as he steps into the marketplace. And the message that he has while he is there is not some amalgam of, listen, friends, God has created a standard for you to live. You have failed to meet that standard. But if you do enough, if you fit the right mold, God will finally look at you and he will, uh, he will uh, accept you. If you fit the mold and you do the right things, he, he, will, he will take care of you. That is not the message that Paul has when he steps into the marketplace. The the message that Paul has is actually quite provocative. He steps into this place and he shares the good news of Jesus. It sounds something much more like this. Hey, listen, Jesus welcomes everybody as they are. He welcomes everybody as they are, but he leaves no one as they were. And you find this over and over again in the gospel stories of Jesus as he encounters people. No one is left unchanged by an interaction with Jesus. Nobody is the same as they were. He welcomes everybody as they are and he brings transformation. Nobody in a genuine encounter with faith in Jesus is left as they were. There's transformation that takes place. So he shows up in the marketplace with good news of great joy that you don't need to do better and try harder. He shows up in the marketplace with a message of grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus. And friends, I think there's something really profound about uh, the practice that Jesus then uh, institutes for his people on repeat to rehearse as we are those who step into uh, the marketplace by God's grace with a message of good news and great joy, not being provoked at people, but at a larger uh, system of idolatry at work, one of the things Jesus left us with is a regular remembrance that as his people, we are just in much of need of his grace as anybody else. And so on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his small group of followers together and he rehearsed something that has been passed down to us uh, in the form of what we call communion. And it's a meal shared by his people. And everything that happens in this meal is meaningful. Jesus takes a cup and he takes bread and he says, this bread represents my body which is broken for you, and he passed it along. And he took a cup and he said, this cup represents uh, my blood of the new covenant, which is for you. And he passes it along. And friends, he says that we ought to do this as we gather, because when we gather, we are rehearsing the story of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. And so today, we're gonna take a moment to rehearse that story together. If you're here and are a follower of Jesus, uh, you're invited to participate in communion with us today. If you need uh, elements, you may have gotten them on your way in, but if you need them and did not grab them, you can raise your hand and we will uh, deliver them to you right now. But he invites us to retell the story of good news, of great joy. It's the story we need to be reminded as we enter into the marketplace. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul himself said about this. 1 Corinthians 11. 
He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this uh, is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, let's take the bread together and remember Jesus' body. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, let's drink the cup together. And in this way, we remember our dependence on the gospel. We remember that we uh, have been welcomed uh, as we are, but have never been left as we were as followers of Jesus. And that we are sent into the marketplace with good news of great joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us today. We ask that uh, long after we leave this place, you'd continue to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd teach us, that you would, uh, as we go about our day, that you'd provoke our spirits. We'd be provoked as we walk through our city, but Lord, that you'd provoke us because of the idolatry of our city. And with that, would you send us into our marketplace with good news of great joy, Thank you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Friends, let's stand and close in song together.